In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneville of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, the Sedition Trials of Young Ireland, delivered by Mr Hugh Mohan, Senior Counsel, David Barneville introduces. Good afternoon, everybody, and, and welcome to this lecture in the Green Street Court lecture series, delivered uh, by Hugh Mohan on the topic of the sedition and treason trials of the young Irelanders in 1848. Uh, everyone is, is very welcome uh, this evening. Could I ask you please to welcome uh, Hugh Mullen? Thank you. Uh, good evening, everybody, and thank you, Chairman. The talk this evening is on the sedition and treason trials of the young Irelanders in 1848. In that year, there were a number of sedition and treason trials. Uh, the first trial was that of William Smith O'Brien, which took place in a single day on the 15th of May 1848 in this very courtroom, followed the next day by the trial of Thomas Francis Marr, again in this courtroom. Both were discharged. Two weeks later, John Mitchell faced charges under the new Treason Felony Act, which was rushed in after the acquittals, again here in Green Street. He wasn't as lucky. He was convicted and deported. The next trial took place after the botched insurrection in July 1848 at Ballangari, and there were then treasons, uh, two tri uh, trials for high treason, that again of William Smith O'Brien and Thomas Francis Marr, this time in Clonmel. They were sentenced to death, that was commuted, and they were subsequently deported. And throughout most of this period of time, Charles Gavin Duffy, who was editor of the Nation newspaper, was in Newgate Prison. Newgate Prison was in that uh, piece of uh, uh, playground which we see attached here, which was a horrible uh, antiquated jail which was attached here, it was a remand prison and he was there for a period of almost 10 months waiting for trial and did stand trial on five separate occasions all in this courtroom for sedition and treason fel felony. But the significance of it all, uh, never before or since had this country seen or has it seen since then as many political trials heard in open court in front of juries albeit packed. And the significance of it was that it was taken at a place uh, of such a momentous period in Irish history as Ireland was undergoing the ravages of the catastrophic Great Famine. For the narrative and backdrop of these events, one goes back to 1829, to Catholic emancipation. Ireland was now for the first time reaping the benefit of this change because it now had, for the first time, the first wave of a modern indigenous intelligentsia. And that first wave of radicals, revolutionaries, authors, poets, thinkers and barristers that would come forward would have a, a dramatic and lasting effect on the shape of this country now and indeed the extraordinary tale of where they themselves ended up post-1848. So to put all of that in context, it would be impossible to go through the trials without some little lead-in to how that took place. The story begins, as indeed all good stories do, in Monaghan. <laughs> Charles Gavin Duffy was born to a Catholic shopkeeper in Monaghan town in 1814. His mother and father died quite young, and his more well-to-do uncle, uh, 
had taken charge of him and had promised that he would give him a decent education. There were in fact no Catholic secondary schools in Monaghan at that time and he had to be brought up in brought to a Presbyterian school and there he was an avaricious reader, read everything that he was given to and started to write at a very young age giving articles mostly to northern papers and publications and he became a journalist accredited at the age of 17 or 18 and was working in Belfast. The story is then taken up in 1841 when Charles Gavin Duffy arrives in Dublin to enter the King's Inns to train to be a barrister. Now the King's Inns at that time, it had just moved to the beautiful Gandon building that we all know. It really was a place to go if one wanted to be a mover and shaker in Irish political and legal circles. But bizarrely or oddly enough, there were no lectures. One simply had to enrol for eight dinners per term if one was accepted and then one could be called to the bar. But critically, you had to take an oath of allegiance even to practice at the junior bar. Anyway, Gavin Duffy arrived in 1841 and there he met a, another young man by the name of John Blake Dillon. John Blake Dillon, who was obviously to become father of John Dillon, uh, leader of the parliamentary, Irish Parliamentary Party, party and grandfather to James Dillon who subsequently became leader of Fine Gael in the 1950s. Blake Dillon was from a more uh, prosperous Catholic family in Balladurine in County Roscommon. He had studied at Maynooth for the priesthood, given that up, went to Trinity and from Trinity he went to the inns. Blake Dillon went on to be called to the bar in 1841 but Gavin Duffy for reasons that we'll find out in fact it didn't get called to the bar until 1845. Blake Dillon was a very close friend with Thomas Davis. Thomas Davis was a Protestant intellectual. He was born in Mallow. His mother was Irish, but his father was a surgeon in the British Army and they'd moved to, to Dublin. He had studied at Trinity College, had been called to the bar in 1838, and by this time, in fact, had written a fantastic biography of John Philpot Curran. He'd also written another pamphlet or book on James II and James II's Parliament. He'd done all of this in his mid-twenties and in fact had penned uh, two ballads which are still uh, recited and sung today, The West's Awake and A Nation Once Again. He was very, very concerned about the lack of the attention to Irish culture and heritage, the fact that the spirit he sought of 1798 had gone and he wanted to bring this back. So at a famous meeting between Davis, Blake Dillon and uh, Gavin Duffy in Phoenix Park, the idea was to bring forward a new publication. Davis was practicing at the bar, didn't want to do it and was busy writing. Blake Dillon would assist. So Gavin Duffy decided he would set up the Nation newspaper and he became the proprietor and editor of that newspaper. It was an, literally an overnight sensation and success. And it would carry the main news stories of the day, but allied to that it had identified in thick black ribbon comment pieces and then attached to that it had sections on Irish culture, on Irish literature, on the basically the forebears to all of what had happened to Finn McCool, Cúhullan and all of that. It catered for all tastes but it was seeking to identify, to reignite among the ordinary people their identity as a nation separate from England, their identity as a culture and in their language. And in many ways in fact it was a precursor to the revival of the Gaelic League and the language and the GAA when they set up, they harked back to what the nation had attempted to achieve. And it was very much Davis's brainchild, although Gavin Duffy brought it to fruition. And why was it so successful? Because it was very lucky to call upon a series of very, very bright young people. 
The poet James Clarence Mangan, in fact, uh, had, a poet, uh, had almost a poem in every edition. He also had James Finton Lawler, uh, who was an intellectual from Carlow, who focused on agrarian reform. His ideas would, all, at a later stage, become very much part of the Land League platform in decades to come. And another young man from Monaghan, Thomas Devon Riley, who was very, very interested in the labour movement. Others included Lady Jane Wilde, who was Oscar Wilde's mother, who wrote poetry under the pen name Speranza. And of course, at a later stage, the greatest radical of them all, John Mitchell. And it was reckoned that in, within 18 months to two years, every household in nationalist Ireland would have a copy of the nation newspaper where it would be read or read to people who couldn't read. As this was happening, what else was uh, of note in Irish society? O'Connell's repeal movement was struggling to maintain its momentum. But Gavin Duffy and the Young Irelanders were at first devoted attendees at repeal hearings and monster meetings, covering them in the nation. But unlike heretofore, the nation was not a yes newspaper. It was questioning, and it started to criticise what O'Connell did and division started to appear. This happened in 1842 and 1843 when Russell was the Whig, the Whig leader but the leader of the opposition and they published a series of articles that there was meetings, secret meetings between Russell and O'Connell where the potential of a sweetheart deal was being hatched between the two, that O'Connell would be given a place at cabinet with Russell and in return he would say, accept a much watered down version of repeal or home rule. This incensed O'Connell and it incensed O'Connell uh, because he had to accept that these meetings had taken place, they were in secret and he hadn't told the public, but he now tried to say that they were not to the effect that the nation had pointed out. At the same time, he said that the nation should come under the roof of the repeal movement and that the enormous revenue that the nation was now garnering should be brought into the repeal coffers. This was resisted and refused by Gavin Duffy and uh, by Thomas Davis and divisions were very much mounting at that point in time. Now, enter the frame, uh, Thomas Mitchell. Mitchell uh, didn't, uh, he, he was basically from uh, County Derry, born in 1814. He had then moved to Newry, and there he was working as a solicitor's clerk. But he was a Presbyterian, uh, son of a Presbyterian clergyman and of the Presbyterian faith. In fact, he was a radical and a firebrand from Morgo. He eloped at the age of 17 with his girlfriend, who became his wife and stayed with him for life. She, aged 15. He had been writing regularly for the nation, but only at a distance from Newry. And in 1845, at the premature age of 30, Thomas Davis died from scarlet fever. And Gavin Duffy then invited Mitchell to assume more editorial responsibility, and he arrived in Dublin to take up a role in the staff of the nation. Almost from that very moment, the tone and the tenor of what was appeared in the nation changed. And the advocation of force, although not explicit, was certainly coming to the fore. At Mitchell's arrival in August of 1845, the very next month was the first failure of the potato crop in September 1845, and Ireland entered what can only be described as the saddest and most catastrophic period in its entire history. Mitchell, though Presbyterian, was vehemently anti-British, and he claimed in 1845 that the famine was not a natural disaster, but an artificial one created by the British attempting to cull the Irish population, and in his own words, and I quote, shaking the small leaseholders from the soil. As Mitchell's forceful rhetoric increased, the relationship with O'Connell became more fractured. It was brought to a head in the Repeal Association's headquarters, which were held in a aptly or ironically named place, the Conciliation Hall, in July 1846. It stood in Burke Quay, and a new name enters the stage, Thomas Francis Marr. 
Now, Thomas Francis Marr was from Waterford. His father was a wealthy Waterford businessman. He had gone to school in Clongus, and his father, rather than send him to Trinity, sent him to the Catholic University in Stonyhurst in England. He too arrived in 1844 to study at the King's Inns to become a barrister, but abandoned his plans as he became ever more radicalised and involved in the struggle. He was very flamboyant, very colourful, and he had developed from his time in England a very clipped Anglo-Irish accent, which at first people were suspicious of him, but in fact within a very short number of months he had gained a reputation as a fantastic orator, and whenever his name was posted on bills that he would speak, he would fill a hall. He too uh, was very energised and was very much more on the Mitchell line of thinking. So he also was, had an obsession with Robert Emmett and Emmett's speech from the dock. He earned for himself the name Thomas the Sword Mar after that meeting in July 1846. That meeting was called by Daniel O'Connell at that point to really stamp out the separate thinking of the Young Ireland movement. Motions were put down that in fact the Young Ireland movement would, uh, that all members would disavow the use of force, that all members would adhere to the, uh, uh, to the principles of the Repeal Association. They expected that they would flush them out, how wrong they were. At that meeting, Marr stood up and gave one of the speeches of his life when he was asked explicitly, did he disavow the use of force? And he stated at the end of the speech, it is the weapon of the patriot that alone can prevail against battalion despotism. Be it for the defence or be it for the assertion of a nation's liberty, I look upon the sword as a sacred weapon. Abhor the sword, stigmatise the sword, absolutely not. So here the gauntlet was thrown down and the radical young Irelanders found an unlikely man in their midst in William Smith O'Brien. Smith O'Brien was from a wealthy Protestant landowning family. In fact, uh, their family home where he was born is now Drumolan Castle. They claimed descent from Brian Baru, and in fact they'd only become Protestant in order to save their lands from being uh, repossessed. He was Cambridge educated and he'd been called to the English Bar in 1826 and had served as an MP since 1828 for Ennis and then for, for, for Limerick. But he had backed the emancipation movement and he was Quite unlike a lot of the other MPs, he was absolutely distraught at what had been happening to the peasants during the early years of the famine. But the Young Irelanders, or the radical Young Irelanders, were delighted to have him on board. He was older, he was in his 40s, they were in their 20s. He exuded authority, and although quiet and reserved, he was an audacious addition. So now you had two separate groups. You had the disaffected Young Irelanders, led by Mitchell and Marr, backed by Smith O'Brien, and they set up what's called the Irish Confederation. Mitchell resigned from the nation newspaper after Gavin had attempted to tone down some of his articles. Now, all of this was happening, as I say, at a time in 1845, but had continued into 1846, and they had hoped that matters would be turned around, but again, unfortunately, the first potato crop of 1846 in May failed. Now, the famine it's important to understand that while it was countrywide, it really was centred more, much, much more dramatically and demographically along the western seaboard. Dublin saw the famine more from the people walking through on their way to the coffin ships. And in fairness, it has to be said, not just the middle classes, but the working and poor classes of Dublin closed their doors to them as they made their way, very much as the statue you now see in the Keys depicts. And the one man who throughout it all was appalled and who kept writing about it was Mitchell. Indeed, he wrote of the middle classes of our own profession. He said, Barristers are full of patriotic devotion in the conciliation hall were appointed to commissionerships, are now happy to forget and to turn away. 
And in the same month, to underline that life at the top table had continued as normal, our own institution, King's Inns, had printed, as it always did, an order for Commons for the Trinity term, 1847. Now, the menu you'll see changed per day, but the bill of fare for a Wednesday of that term in the month of June was as follows. Pea or vegetable soup to start, then haddock, sole or salmon with oyster or plain sauce. Followed, the main course was roast rib or sirloin of beef with celery, mashed parsnip and broccoli. And to finish, rhubarb or gooseberry or apple pie. On grand night, each barrister and student was entitled to a full pint of port, sherry or claret, and every other night, a half pint. So business as usual, and a life about which we know some. But as our former colleagues were dining in such style, the Illustrated London News published a story, now infamous story, about what happened on Wednesday the 10th of June 1847. It told about a group of starving people who had gathered in Lewisburg. Now, Lewisburg had, for the year prior to this, had absolutely no food whatsoever. The crop had failed. They were trying to eat seaweed. They, in fact, had tried to go fishing for fish, but the currucks had broken. And they were relying on their arrival on a periodic basis of food through a soup kitchen. That had not arrived for some three weeks beforehand, and the roofs had fallen in, there was no cover, and basically the town was destitute with, at that stage, people who were two to three weeks without eating. They had called for, um, for assistance. The local relieving officer came, but without food. He informed them that they would have to apply to the Board of Guardians, and he told them that they were meet to meet the next day in Delphi Lodge, 10 miles away. Now, they spent the night in the open and proceeded on foot to Delphi. When they reached Delphi, the board was in fact at lunch and could not be disturbed. When they finally did meet them, assistance was refused. The weather at this stage was absolutely atrocious. It was wind, rain and hailstones. They had nothing left to do but to return on foot, basically to the barren desolation from which they came. It's been recorded that approximately 20 made it and 80 perished. I just rem remind you what was being eaten in the inns that very night. On the same month, a report in the Times newspaper recorded a story from life in County Clare. The reporter on entering Kilrush said that he was transplanted to the land of the dead. I quote, it is a specimen of dilapidation I, I behold all around. There is nothing but devastation and death. While the soil is of the finest description, capable of yielding as much as any land in the empire, here at Tullig and other places, the ruthless destroyer has left the walls of the houses standing while he has unroofed them, taking away all shelter from the people, and inside lie the unburied dead, men, women, and children. They look like the tombs of a departed race rather than the recent abodes of a yet living people. And I felt actually relieved at seeing one or two half-clad spectres gliding about as an evidence that I was not in the land of the dead. So that eerily depicts what was ravaging the western seaboard at that particular time and life not entirely but almost as normal as one went eastward and into Dublin. Tim Pat Coogan in his updated edition on the famine says that emigration was a, a huge feature but it came after, after the uh, starvation and after the in fact, it, it was the disease post-starvation that caused most of the death, and that wrought havoc in 47 and 48 with the main wave of emigration to come after that, because they literally weren't fit to, to seek emigration during those years where they simply had no food. And he depicts a 16-month period of time during that time when he estimates that approximately 10 
thousand people died per week. It is a holocaust on an epic scale in our own country and only four generations back from where we are now. It is extraordinary. And the, the strange thing was that it didn't, it didn't actually grab the consciousness as one might have expected in the chattering classes, in the political classes, or in the ruling classes. And Mitchell was outraged, but Mitchell was a radical. The Irish Confederation were outraged, but they were seen very much left and at this stage, I think it's important also to point out there was unrest in Europe, there was potato plight in Europe, and there was the, 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 the insurrection in Paris, which took place in the spring or the February of 1848. That uprising was successful for a period of time, and Marr was sent over to them to see could he gain support. He didn't gain support, but critically, he returned with a present from the radicals in Paris who had at that stage unveiled the French tricolour. They had given him the Irish version, our own flag that we know today, and he surmounted it on an Irish pike at the Dublin Trade Committee of 18, April 1848. Well, if I, if I can get back now to the narrative, Thomas Mitchell has left the nation and he sets up in February of 1848 his own newspaper, The United Irishman. And in the very first edition, he denounces the Lord Lieutenant, the Earl of Clarendon. He described him in the first sentence, Lord Clarendon is a butcher. He urged for a rebellion. He championed the revolution of that month in Paris of February 1848. And in the articles, he set out uh, positions on pipe drills, construction of barricades, and guerrilla fighting. He also urged the Protestant population uh, to rise up. And he told them that the Pope might be the Antichrist, but he brings no evictions in Ulster. And in a prelude to the trials, on the 21st of March, 1848, at a pre-arranged meeting, before a large but excited crowd at Dublin's North Wall, uh, Thomas Marr and Smith O'Brien gave rousing speeches. Speeches in line with what a Mitchell had published were now openly calling for armed insurrection and rebellion and the use of arms against what they saw as the palpable injustice of English rule, particularly in dealing with the famine. Now, uh, Dublin Castle and London, who obviously kept a close eye on everyone, became absolutely alarmed. Stanley, Lord Stanley in the House of Lords spoke that this was exciting sedition on Her Majesty's subjects in Ireland, the object being to do everything to drive people of Ireland to sedition, to incite them into open rebellion and throughout civil war. Mitchell in his next edition defiantly predicted he would be prosecuted and he was right. The Lord Lieutenant Clarendon ordered the arrest of Mitchell, Marr and Smith O'Brien and they were brought here to this building which I don't think has changed much since that day and they were charged. Mitchell was charged for the articles in the United Irishman newspaper, Smith O'Brien in charge for their speeches at the North Wall. And an extraordinary feature of this is that all three were charged in April 1848. The trials took place in the following month of May 1848, a process unimaginable today. Smith O'Brien's trial began on the 15th of May 1848 in this courtroom, very much as we're sitting in it today. The Attorney General and Mr Monaghan prosecuted, and Isaac Butt, later of the Home Rule Party, represented both Smith O'Brien and Amar. And, Mar. and a huge feature, as you'll see in all of these trials, is the composition of the jury. And this takes up all the time, more time, than the trial itself. And so after that was gone through and the, uh, the, the jury impanelled, Butt started his defence of Smith O'Brien. His defence was that the speech was not seditious. He first of all required the Crown to prove the content of the speech, which was no easy feat given that there was no actual recording. And he would challenge through cross-examination the testimony, the different testimony for, for, for what was said. 
But try as he might, he knew that ultimately it was going to come down to what the jury might think and how the jury could be addressed. As in all these trials, the accused didn't give evidence. So at the end of the prosecution case, Isaac Butt uh, spoke to the jury and he argued that basically what was happening here was, and I quote, an honest endeavour to bring the union into contempt. He asserted that there was an entitlement of an oppressed nation to assert, assert its liberties by arms and that this in turn had been the fundamental assertion of the English Revolution in 1688. That it was on this basis that James II had been driven from the crown. That it was on this basis that there had been a Bill of Rights in 1688, which would justify resistance in this day if Queen Victoria was rash enough to infringe the sacred right of citizens. He argued that Smith O'Brien's aim had not been against the Queen's authority, but against the constitutional parliament and in favor of the older and more favored constitution. It received huge applause from the packed uh, throng, but it didn't curry uh, so much favor with the bench. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the jury retired at 6.30pm and came back at 10.30 saying they were not unanimous. But before they were locked up for the night, they asked for refreshments and comforts. They were turned down. And the next morning, the hungry, upset foreman announced there was no prospect of a unanimous verdict and the jury was discharged. The second trial, the very next day, that of Thomas Francis Marr, almost an identical one to what happened the day before. Uh, he was being, basically being tried for a speech on the North Wall. The prosecution called the witnesses, Isaac but um, cross-examined, but really it was going to come down to what the jury would think of Isaac Butt's argument. And as I pointed out, as with the previous uh, trial, there had been significant argument over the composition of the jury where the religion of the jury had been openly raised on a number of occasions. And during Isaac Butt's closing speech uh, to the jury, he asked the members during that speech to disregard religious prejudice. And an unusual incident took place where the foreman, speaking directly from the jury box, took exception. He said, and I quote, I would rather, Mr. Butt, that you did not refer to religious distinctions. I would rather you let it stand on its own merits. We are all unanimous on that point. But I'm afraid a certain Mr. Walsh, sitting as far away from the foreman, said to wild laughter and cheers, we are certainly not unanimous. But was successful. The next day the foreman announced there was no agreement. The foreman stated, he had change of heart, we are all agreed but for one, and he is a Roman Catholic. The same Mr. Walsh. <laughs> now, I had said to you at the, at the outset that three to be charged were um, Smith O'Brien, uh, Marr, and Mitchell. Mitchell's trial was to take place almost in quick succession, but the Crown halted at this stage. They became very concerned about the failure of the juries to reach a verdict. In other words, not to secure the conviction. All three had been charged with sedition under the Treason Act 1351. It had two offences. It had treason, high treason, penalty death by hanging, or sedition, which was a misdemeanour, which was uh, a much seen as a, a much less serious offence. Following the successful, uh, unsuccessful prosecutions, the government in two days ran through a new piece of legislation called the Treason Felony Act, which created a new offence with a new penalty, transportation of between seven years and life. Gavin Duffy couldn't have put it better. He wrote about it in The Nation. He said that the act was to suppress plain speaking in the press and at public meetings. The government proposed a new and stringent law above which only sedition, punishable by brief imprisonment, became treason felony, punishable by transportation for life. And indeed, if one has to pause at this stage and reflect on what was happening, freedom of speech was at the core of what was at the centre of these trials. They were all 
political trials, the intention to suppress freedom of speech, to remove the problem of the radicals and to have them deported. Mitchell was now charged with two new offences under the new Act. First was that he did willfully and feloniously compass, imagine, invent, devise, and attempt to deprive and depose our gracious Lady the Queen from the style, honour, and royal name of the Imperial Crown of the United Kingdom. You couldn't make it up. And secondly, that he did levy war against Her Majesty and ordered by force and constraint to compel her to change her measures and counsels. Again, the trial format followed the usual format. They, basically, the evidence consisted of the articles. On Saturday the 20th of May, but a week later, the trial opened again in this very building. Uh, and these trials, whilst there was the grand jury, which would have to be impaneled to see was there a case to answer, very much as in the US, there was then the actual trial. But the trial was chaired not by a judge, but by a commission. Uh, it was called a commission of oyer and terminer, meaning to see and to judge. It was a three-man commission. And in essence, the chair of that had to be an experienced judge, but the other two didn't necessarily have to be judges, although they could be judges. And the trial lasted four days, three days, with the issue of who would sit as a jury on one day on the trial itself. The presiding judges were Baron Lefroy, who was the chair, the Right Honourable Richard Moore and the Right Honourable Jeremiah Dunn. Neither, as I say, of those second two were practising judges at the time. Now, a bit about Lefroy, an interesting man. A Trinity graduate, a former auditor of the College Historical Society, called to the bar in 1797, elected Tory MP for Dublin University in 1830, appointed judge with the title Baron of Exchequer in 1841. In other words, a man of the ascendancy, a man whose background and pedigree was impeccable as far as the administration was concerned. But his other great claim to fame, and maybe next time you're in the inns on your way in, it's the portrait on the left-hand side of the thing. And he's there in his fine ermine and flowing robes. He, this is Baron Lefroy, back in 1796, was in fact the boyfriend of one Jane Austen at a time when she was writing Pride and Prejudice. So, in fact, in a movie about Jane, I see James McAvoy plays him. And trust me, from what you're about to find out in this talk, he's a very different character than the dandy in that movie. In any event, the other man, Moore, was from Waterford, a Whig, former Solicitor General and Attorney General. He was later to preside at Smith O'Brien's trial for high treason in Clomel. And the other uh, commissioner was Jeremiah Dunn. Jeremiah Dunn was actually then at that time the Lord Mayor of Dublin. And his other claim to fame was that he was criticised at his inaugural dinner in 1847 for failing to toast the memory of O'Connell. I should point out that O'Connell had died in Genoa earlier, that year, earlier in 1847, I think in the month of April. Now Mitchell. Mitchell was represented by two junior counsel, Robert Holmes, Samuel Ferguson, by Sir, and by Sir Coleman O'Loughlin QC. Of the three, Robert Holmes is by far the most interesting individual. He was, at the, that stage, the father of the bar. He was the leader of the Northeastern Circuit, and he was 83 years of age. He had, in fact, been 45 years prior to that, um, uh, Robert Emmett's brother-in-law, been married at that time, and obviously for the rest of his life, to Robert Emmett's sister, Emma. He didn't take part in the Rising, but he was arrested and imprisoned for almost upwards of a year. He was released without charge, but from then on it had a dramatic affect upon him. He eschewed advancement by the government, he refused silk, he refused to be a judge, and he refused to get, allow himself to get involved in politics. But he worked at the bar, and he worked hard at the bar, and he had a deserved reputation at the bar, and he was at the head of the bar even at, the, at that age of 83. He'd previously represented O'Connell and Gavin Duffy. 
Samuel Ferguson, the other junior, was also from Belfast and a member of the Northeastern Circuit. He was a widely acclaimed poet, wrote mythological poems, and subsequently greatly admired by Yeats. So Coleman O'Loughlin QC was a son of a judge in Clare, and he turns up quite a lot in these trials as the leader. He went on to become Judge Advocate General. In any event, <coughs> back to Mitchell. He pleaded not guilty. As I say, the argument raged for four days, sorry, I said three, for the composition of the jury. The defence was unsuccessful. And in the words of Mitchell's friend and young Irelander, um, John Martin, he described the sheriff as somebody who was skilled in the arts, which corrupt justice at its source and enraged by two defeats had taken the panel in hand and packed it. After 20 peremptory challenges on behalf of the accused and 39 jurors being set aside, here are the names of the jury. There was going to be no repeat of the previous, uh, previous two trials. John Whitty, foreman, William Fletcher, Robert Thomas, and this one I particularly like, William Horatio Nelson, Frederick Rambo, William Mansfield, Hallwood Clark, Richard Yokeley, Edward Rothwell, Jason Sherwood, I thought he was a footballer, Thomas Bridgeford, and John Collier. The row uh, being completed, the trial itself took one day. Again, the prosecution opened with the four articles. Mitchell did not give evidence, and the issue was whether or not the articles had the meaning contended for in the indictment. Hence the importance, A, of the composition of the jury, and B, of the speeches. The speech... And indeed, the speech of Robert Holmes was the closing speech, and the trial is probably best known for that speech. His link to Emmett was well known and was well publicised. Um, Holmes started his speech by trying to remind the members of the trial jury what had happened before the grand jury. He tried to sway them and to say, look, you have to take this seriously. He said, when I asked the members of the grand jury whether they found the bill against the prisoner, they had said, yes, we find him guilty of sedition. Holmes said, well, I pointed out he was not indicted for sedition. The foreman said, well, we find him guilty of treason. When Holmes said, well, I again interrupted and pointed out the charge against Mitch Mr. Mitchell was for felony, the foreman replied, sedition, treason or felony, it is all the same to us. So that's what you were dealing with. Holmes gave a rousing speech. Holmes sat down here to the right, and oftentimes Lefroy would berate him for not seeking to address the court by trying to seek and address the jury, which was sitting up here. And oftentimes he would swing around to address the crowd. And at this stage, tension between himself and Lefroy was so bad, and he was so sure of the outcome, that in fact he addressed the crowd rather than the jury, and his closing remarks are wonderful. No, they were I, I, unfortunately falling on deaf ears, and they're as follows. Deep, deep, deep is the guilt of England and its unprovoked invasion and unjust dominion in Ireland. The slave struggles to be free and the enslaver kills him because he struggles. Gentlemen of the jury, I speak not here merely for my client. I speak for you and your children and your children's children. I speak not here for myself. My lamp of life is flickering and will soon be extinguished. But were I now standing on the brink of the grave and uttering the last words of an expiring nature, I would say... May Ireland be happy, may Ireland be free. It rests with you, gentlemen of the jury, this day by your verdict of acquittal. It rests with you to contribute your part toward making Ireland happy and free. And as you value and love the country of your birth, the land of your fathers, I call upon you by your verdict of acquittal in this case to do your part toward making Ireland happy and free. Holmes had deliberately turned his attention away because he knew the verdict was all but assured. 40 minutes later, a guilty verdict. Mitchell was sentenced to 14 years transportation. As was his entitlement, he was asked after having been sentenced, did he have anything to say to the court? He said the following, 
Three months ago, I promised Lord Clarendon that I would provoke him into the courts of justice, as places of this kind are called, that I would force him to publicly and notoriously pack a jury against me to convict me, or else that I would walk a free man out of this court. My Lord, I knew I was setting my life in that cast, but I knew in either event that victory would be with me as it is with me. I presume neither the jury nor the judges nor any man in this court imagines that it is a criminal that stands in this dock. I have shown them what law is made of in Ireland. I have shown that Her Majesty's government sustains itself in Ireland by packed juries, partisan judges, and by perjured sheriffs. He was interrupted, as you can understand, by Lafroy. And in a very telling sequence, he was literally standing there. And the bar in which he was holding is, in fact, in the glass case outside, and it's worth a look on your way out. And with that, he swiveled round to ignore Lafroy. And again, with his back to the court, he addressed the gallery, which was full of his supporters. And he said, I believe that the course which I have opened is only commenced. The Roman who saw his hand burning to ashes before the tyrant promised that 300 should follow out his enterprise. Can I not promise for one, for two, for three, aye, hundreds? The courtroom went wild, erupted, and they shouted back, aye, thousands. Lefroy called for order in vain, directed Mitchell takedown, and the court had to rise. And there ended that trial. And in his famous book, his famous travelogue called jail, The Jail Journal, the opening paragraph begins, and it's the most famous piece of the book. May 27, 1884, on this day at about four o'clock in the afternoon, I, John Mitchell, was kidnapped and carried off from Dublin in chains as a convicted felon. The government was afraid he would be rescued, and after a brief farewell to his family in the adjoining Newgate prison, he was taken by ship to Spike Island, where he spent one night, put on another ship, ironically named the Scourge, which sailed for Bermuda, where he spent time before being transported to South Africa and then to Van Diemen's Land, now in Tasmania. Now, an interesting point here is that the government was determined to ensure that Mitchell would not become, in the words of Lord Russell, who was very, maybe not clever about the family, but was very clever about dealing with sedition. He did not want him, in Lord Russell's words, to become either a hero or a martyr. He said that Ireland had enough martyrs and it was their job to prevent the making of any new heroes a lesson that was not learned by Maxwell and others in the British authorities after the 1916 rising. Now, we are at this stage in mid-1848. The potato crop has failed again, and there was no end to the suffering, death, and emigration. There was an unwillingness on the part of the British government to deal with it. Um, it was being excoriated by all sides. Some notable people who stood up and were counted for and were not afraid to say things that had to be said and were writing letters continuously to the Telegraph and Times newspaper. One such was Archbishop McHale from Chum. There was a huge amount of unrest now that post the Mitchell trial, and uh, there was a huge amount of concern, so that on the 25th of July, the government suspended habeas corpus. And at this time, as I was mentioning, there was unrest in Europe. What had happened in February was that King Louis-Philippe had been overthrown and the Second French Republic was created. But that in turn was overthrown in June 1848. But during that rebellion, a matter at which I will return to, Archbishop Abre was shot. In any event, Smith O'Brien and Marr said, it's now or never. The Young Irelanders and the Irish Confederation elected Secret Executive Committee. Uh, John Blake Dillon, who we've heard about, Thomas Marr, Richard O'Gorman, who was a young barrister from Cork, and Darcy McGee, who was a young writer from Carlingford. The committee was to work directly under Smith O'Brien and Marr and a, a dedicated revolutionary by the name of Michael Doheny, who would go on to join the IRB. They set in plan uh, plans for an immediate rise. And the idea was to call together and muster as many as they could towards 
the uh, Slievenamon mountain in County Tipperary, a location they believed had mythical significance with its uh, association with Nafina. So the emboldened revolutionaries set off to try to Kilkenny, Waterford and Tipperary, urgent insurrection. But two huge problems. The first and most significant problem was that people were interested in food, not arms. They really had no will to arm up and couldn't do it even if they wanted to, because at that stage, the famine they were in the throes of the famine. The second was the Catholic Church. I've told you about what had happened in Paris, and word came out from on high that any urging to insurrection had to be countermanded and stopped. So on the 28th of July, 1848, a couple of thousand gathered to hear Smith O'Brien address them. At the same time, two priests were sent out who tried to shout him down and were speaking at either end of the throng in which he was speaking. More than half of that throng went home and dispersed. The following day, on the 29th of March, 1848, Smith O'Brien, who was absolutely useless at planning an organisation and who by default found himself as leader of this movement at this point in time, found himself with about 100 supporters armed mostly with pikes with a very small amount of ammunition and guns at Ballingarry County Tipperary. They were being followed by a group of about 47 constables under an inspector, Trant, who came quite close to them at one point. The rabble turned on them. The, the, the 46 constables on the RSE took refuge in the now infamous Widow McCormick's farm and a standoff ensued. Now, who was there? Smith O'Brien was there, Blake Dillon, James Stevens, John O'Mahony, Terence Bellew McManus, they led the rabble. And what happened, as I've said in the paper, was not really worthy of being called either a revolution or an insurrection, but an escapade. And indeed, it's been called the fight for Widow McCormick's cabbage patch. When they came close to the rebels, indeed, Smith O'Brien had actually was trying to, to barter a peace between the two of them, and there was shouting going to and fro, and this literally only happened over two or three hours. But anyway, gunshots came from the, uh, from the Whitney McCormick's house, and two were killed. One who was a member of the rebel, and one who wasn't even involved was a bystander. The militia were merely nervous. At this, some blood now having been spilled, word came out that, re that reinforcements were on the way, and after about three hours, the rebels literally ran away. So a revolution or insurrection, if it could be called such, was over. William Smith O'Brien went to uh, Thurless Station, and at Thurless Station, he was arrested. How he thought he could get away with it, he was actually taking a train going home to his house in Limerick. Uh, when he was arrested. Marr was arrested on the Cashel Road on the run. James Stevens and John O'Mahony immediately went into exile and uh, went to the continent first and then ultimately to America. And their importance, as we all know, is that they were determined that this uh, disaster and embarrassment would never happen again. They were determined to be better organised and hence the birth of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, about which we have all been, heard much about that happened in, the, in the, the next number of decades and into the, this century or the previous century. In any event, now we had William Smith O'Brien and Marr arrested again. This time they were, they were charged with high treason, given what had taken place. Terence Bellew McManus was also charged, as was Patrick O'Donoghue, who was involved. And I want to read to you the indictment. It says, that they, quote, did with great force and arms at the parish of Ballingarry in the said county of Tipperary, together with a great multitude of false traitors, arrayed and armed in warlike manner, with guns, pistols, pikes, clubs, bludgeons, and other weapons, did then and there unlawfully, maliciously and traitorously levy and make war, and then and there did erect certain obstructions composed of cars, carts, pieces of timber, and other material, erected and built to a great height, that is to say, the height of five feet and upwards, 
And that, in truth, as I say, was about the height of it. So the trials were fixed for Clomel. Again, the big row of the composition of the, of the grand jury and the trial jury. The commission this time was headed by Chief, the Chief Justice Blackburn. The prosecution was again led by the Attorney General Monaghan. James Whiteside QC was now defending Smith O'Brien. Whiteside was a leading member of the Inner Bar, a member of the North Eastern Circuit yet again. He went on to become a Conservative MP and was laterally Attorney General and Lord Chief Justice in Ireland. His argument was that Smith O'Brien had simply wished to evade arrest rather than lead a rebellion, and that his mild manners and respect for private property were extraordinary in a rebel leader. And that is probably correct, because Smith O'Brien's conduct on that day in Ballangari were extraordinary as he was trying to stay off and stop people being shot rather than to lead a revolutionary force. He said that his supposedly treasonable speeches merely echoed O'Connell and that it was really unfair to prosecute a Protestant agitator. And an even more extraordinary thing was that Marr, who was prosecuted, Marr, as I told you, wasn't there. And they sought to rely on speeches that he'd given some six months prior to that. Isaac Butt came down to defend him. And he argued that these speeches six months before Ballangari um, should, tell the, should tell him that, he, that, that in fact that if they convicted him it would mean that he had appeared in arms, had erected barricades and was in Ballangari when he clearly wasn't. But no matter, despite this argument, the result was a foregone conclusion and after a short trial the jury returned guilty verdicts but with a recommendation that the sentences be lenient. But uh, Chief Justice Blackburn was having none of it, put the black cloth on top of his wig and uttered the famous lines, and I quote, that you be taken hence to the place from whence you came, and there be placed on a hurdle to the place of execution, and there be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and afterwards your head shall be severed from your body, and your body divided into four quarters, and be disposed of as Her Majesty shall think fit, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Both took the opportunity to speak as was their right after sentence. Smith O'Brien was concise but implacable. He merely said he'd performed his duty to his country and asked Blackburn to proceed. Marr, who probably had been waiting for this moment all his life, stood up, as I've told you, obsessed with Emmett and his legacy and gave the following. He said, my aim had been to lift this island up, to make her a benefactor to humanity instead of being as she is now, the meanest beggar in the world to restore her, her native powers and her native constitution. This has been my ambition and this ambition has been my crime. I know this crime impales the penalty of death, but the history of Ireland explains that crime and justifies it. Proceed then, my Lord, that with that sentence that the law directs, I am prepared to hear it. I trust I am prepared to meet its execution. I shall go with a light heart before a higher tribunal, a tribunal where a judge of infinite goodness as well as infinite justice will preside, and where, my lords, many, many of the judgments of this world will be reversed. Um, as I said, he was an extraordinary orator and received many commendations in the press following this, and a, a hark, the harking back to Emmett, Emmett's famous speech was, was not lost on the commentators. commentators. In any event, both appealed their sentences on the ground that treason law did not apply in Ireland and the copies of the indictment should have been given and lists of witnesses should have been given 10 days beforehand. And again, this is extraordinary. They'd in fact been given to the defence but two days beforehand. Not surprisingly, the appeals were unsuccessful. But an interesting interlude to the appeals was that at this stage, Smith O'Brien had given instruction to Coleman O'Loughlin that he would prefer death to transportation. 
Again, the government was very concerned. They were not in the business of making heroes or martyrs, and Lord Russell felt that they wanted to be both. The administration were adamant about it. So the government again rushed through, literally within a period of two days, the Transport for Treason Ireland Act. This allowed, and wait for it, the commuting of the death penalty to transportation, specifically that this could happen without the consent of the individual. An English solution to an Irish problem. Now, again, just to follow the timeline, as all of this was going on, you remember that I said that in July 1848, when habeas corpus was suspended, all the while the nation was being published, it was avoiding calling for an armed insurrection, but it was a thorn in the side of the administration. It was calling for assistance with the famine. It was calling for agitation and resistance to, 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 to the to government forces. Always staying just about on the right side, but the government was having enough of this, had enough of this, and wanted to suppress both Gavin Duffy, muzzle him, and to stop the newspaper. So, as uh, habeas corpus was suspended, he was arrested and brought to Newgate Prison and charged here in this very building with sedition and treason felony. And he was brought forward on five separate occasions to this building on various occasions to meet five different cases. And I'll go through them very briefly for you. The first commission was on the 8th of August, 1848. At this time, the rising had happened, and William Smith O'Brien had been arrested the day before. The Attorney General, Mr. Monaghan, who was prosecuted, announced that the trial could not proceed because a letter of a highly treasonable character, he said, written by Gavin Duffy, had been found in O'Brien's luggage, and that it might be necessary to replace the charges with uh, a higher charge of high treason, and the trial was adjourned. Gavin Duffy remained in prison, and the depiction and description in the jail journal by Mitchell of what the conditions were like in Newgate Prison were absolutely harrowing. Mice, lice, every form of... Uh, the walls were bare, there were no windows, uh, there were only bars in the windows, and they were given one blanket. Uh, it was... It, 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 it extraordinary reading to see the conditions they had to put up with. In any event, the second commission opened on the 26th of October, three days after the conviction of Omar, three days, I should say, after the turning down of the appeal of O'Brien and Omar for high treason. The prosecution wanted now to transfer from here to Dublin County because they thought they'd get a, a, better, a better jury, more favourable from the uh, Crown's point of view. But they had to, or should have given, a, a, a period of time, I think it was about 10 days, and they hadn't done so. So uh, that too was adjourned. The third commission opened on the 15th of December with a new bill, and it was that for inciting William Smith O'Brien to make war on the Queen. There was a significant legal argument of whether that could proceed or not, and it was found that it couldn't. So the case was not thrown out, but was adjourned, and Gavin Duffy had to go back into custody. The fourth commission now was now into 1849 on an amended indictment, and again there was a disagreement. And the fifth and last commission opened on the 10th of April in this courtroom, 10th of April 1849. Again, heated exchanges in relation to the impanelment of, of the jury. Out of 170 members called, only 70 answered, despite hefty fines. Some 15 jurors was excu were excused in grounds of ill health, old age, or residency. The defence, however, was successful in getting what they considered a much more favourable and balanced jury. And on Good Friday in April uh, 1849, uh, following him being incarcerated from the previous July and following a very persuasive closing speech by Isaac Butt, and after the jury, despite being locked up for the night, they returned an unable to agree verdict and the Attorney General effectively gave up, consented to bail and Gavin Duffy was released. So that's the, the, the trials, uh, all ten of them, that, of eight of which were held in this very building. But what's arguably 
as interesting, given that I explained to you that this was the first wave of the homegrown indigenous intelligentsia, you then say, what happened to them? What happened to them, as I say, is as extraordinary, and I go through them. John Mitchell. He went to Tasmania. He, you were allowed, basically, if you signed up and made a promise that you wouldn't escape, it was called a ticket of leave, which he did. And his wife and children followed him. But he escaped in 1853, disguised as a priest, where he made his way to America. He was enthusiastically warmed and welcomed. But he became involved in the American Civil War. And he became involved on the Confederacy side. He in fact, was stationed in Richmond, Virginia, and was effectively almost, at one point, the press officer of the southern government. He championed pro-slavery, and he had brought his family with him. He had six children, four sons. Three of those sons uh, joined the Confederate Army, two of whom lost their lives, one of whom uh, became very seriously injured. After the Civil War, he moved to New York, where he was imprisoned for anti-government rhetoric. He moved back to Paris, worked briefly with the Fenians, but fell out with them. And finally arrived back in Ireland in 1875, where he was elected MP for Tipperary, but was declared ineligible as a non-discharged felon. He was re-elected at the subsequent by-election, but died shortly afterwards at the age of 59. His grandson, John Puroy Mitchell, would at 34 become the second youngest and first Hispanic Lord Mayor of New York in 1914. William Smith O'Brien, he was released after five years in Tasmania due to bad health. He travelled the continent, became a copious writer, and he gained quite a reputation as an author. He was ultimately pardoned, probably as a result of his work in that regard, did not re-enter politics, and the reluctant revolutionary died in Bangor, Wales in 1864 at the age of 63. Thomas Francis Marr, probably the most extraordinary story of all. He escaped Tasmania, went to America, called to the New York bar, and he joined the other side, the Union side, at the outbreak of the Civil War. He formed and led the very famous Irish Brigade, becoming, becoming a nationally known and acclaimed Brigadier General. He led the Irish Brigade at Friedrichsburg, Anthheim, and Gettysburg. There were enormous losses of the Irish Brigade at Friedrichsburg, and he was decorated for his role in that particular battle. And after that, uh, he was, in fact, uh, feted by the government for his role, and he became the first governor of Montana. Montana at that stage was a territory, and they were basically segregated and trying to work out the, the, the names of states and the placing of states, and became involved in the writing of the Constitution of Montana and was the first acting governor of Montana. And if you take a look at the, the, the gubernatorial building, there's a very large statue of um, Thomas Francis Marr with the sword held high and declaring his role in the American Civil War and forgetting all about the extraordinary role which we, we've, uh, we've heard about here this evening. But in 1867, he either was pushed or fell overboard a steamboat in the Missouri, and he died after having done all of that at the short age of 44. His body was never found. Charles Gavin Duffy, again an extraordinary uh, epitaph. He became, the nation continued to publish. He, he became involved, but he didn't, didn't remain as editor and then gave up his proprietorship of it. He became a member of parliament for a number of years, became disillusioned with what was happening here and headed for Australia with his family in, in 1856. He immediately became involved in politics in the state of Victoria and in fact became prime minister of Victoria in 1871 for two years. His eldest son, Frank Gavin Duffy, became Chief Justice of Australia. His other son, George Gavin Duffy, you heard Michael McDool talk about him when he was working as a solicitor in London, became Roger Casement's solicitor, and thereafter went back and assisted in the treaty negotiations, ultimately become President of the High Court here. He was President of the High Court here in Ireland when his half-brother was Chief Justice of Australia. 
<coughs> it was unknown to uh, Charles Gavin Duffy, but he actually wrote a famous book called My Life in Two Hemispheres. He had no idea how apt that would be. Thomas Darcy McGee escaped again as a priest to the US after the Ballingarry episode. He went to Montreal in 1857 and was a member of the Parliament in Canada. He was a senior minister, a minister for agriculture in the Conservative government in 1863. And he too was involved in the drafting of the Federal Constitution of Canada and is seen as the father, father of modern constitutional Canada and instrumental in setting up its, constitu its constitution. And he's the only Canadian politician to have been assassinated, which happened on the 7th of April, 1868. Terence Bellew McManus and Patrick Donoghue both became brigadier generals in the US Army. And it was one of the first acts of the rejuvenated IRB was the bringing home of the body of Terence Bellew McManus in a celebrated um, funeral in order to, to try and uh, bring the masses together under the IRB flag, which happened in 1879. Morris Lynn and Michael Ireland, both were foot soldiers at Ballingarry. They went into exile and both became attorneys general of Australia in succession. You remember Richard O'Gorman, who was the young barrister from Cork. He emigrated to the US, became a celebrated US attorney. He was appointed to the Supreme Court of New York in 1880. Thomas Devon Riley, who was the, um, the, the, the labor activist uh, from Monaghan, he went again to America, became editor of the New York Democratic Review, and later the Washington Union, which was a, a, a publication which was published right down the eastern seaboard. So that postscript is quite extraordinary to show you what emancipation had in fact achieved and what the first wave of these radicals could do to better not just Ireland but ultimately themselves when they had to leave. So in conclusion, the proclamation of 1916 makes reference to six times when the people of Ireland took up arms to assert their nationhood. The second last of these is this embarrassing escapade in Ballingarry. But as I've attempted to outline, that 1848, with all that was going on, was a pivotal year in the birth of Irish nationhood and republicanism and the ultimate creation of the republic. These trials, as I've pointed out, were about the freedom of speech, the ability of a country and its citizens to speak out on their own behalf and against the full might of British rule and a British empire. And it was a particular credit to the individuals that they felt empowered to advocate the cause of Irish nationalism and Irish publicanism with all the threats that were there, that they did this without fear or favour to their own safety. Many of the main characters and figures who were prosecuted attended the King's Inns, our own institution, and many qualified as barristers. However, it is the extraordinary work of the barristers that they engaged on their behalf that has really left largely unsung, notably Isaac Butt, who went on to lead the Home Rule Movement, and Coleman O'Loughlin. And the name Robert Holmes I had never heard of is barely remembered these days. He spoke very eloquently in this courtroom on behalf of his client, and he did so 45 years after his brother-in-law stood in that very same dock before he gave up his life. And one moment in the trial, which is quite apt and poignant, Holmes, in the middle of a speech on behalf of Mitchell, at the early stage, brought up Emmett's trial and brought up the speech from the dock. He was immediately berated by Lefroy, who queried its relevance. Remember, Holmes was standing there. Holmes did, as we call in our, in our profession, Holmes did a silence. And the courtroom followed, even Lefroy stayed silent. And Holmes then, when the courtroom was fully silent, defiantly declared to the silent courtroom, lest we forget, lest we forget.
You've been listening to Hugh Mohan, Senior Counsel, deliver his lecture on the Sedition Trials of Young Ireland as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lawlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.